0: Well, good morning to each and every one. Once again, we're going to begin our thoughts together in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, noticing just a few verses here. Starting there in verse 9, the apostle writes and says, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. We are continuing this morning our series on the angel that we began last Lord's Day. And I had told you last Sunday morning that I wasn't sure if this would end up being a four-part or a five-part series. Well, now it's a six-part series. (laughs) So we'll look to conclude the study this coming Sunday evening. But last week we had spent some time noticing what the Bible has to say about the angel of the Lord and discovered some, at least I think, very fascinating things. Sometimes you'll read through the Old Testament and if you're not careful, you'll read through things and fail to really notice the significance of them and how they connect to other items throughout the Word of God. And I think that's the case with this angel of the Lord. Most of the passages that we're analyzing over the course of the study are ones that most of us know well, that we've read many times, but now we're starting to make some connections that I think are often overlooked. And so last week we noticed how the angel of the Lord was seen by human eyes, and we noticed the significance of that, of course, being that while the angel is referred to as God, that God the Father has never been seen by human eyes. So that led us, as we followed the evidence, to a conclusion that this angel was God, but yet not God the Father. We saw Sunday evening that the angel of the Lord was on different occasions worshipped by men. And we noticed some other passages that showed us plainly that normal angels refuse worship and must not be worshipped. Likewise, men must not be worshipped. So again, we were led to this conclusion that the angel of the Lord, while not God the Father, uh, was God the Son, was Jesus Christ. And I think we're going to continue to see that the evidence leads us to that very significant conclusion as we continue through this morning's lesson, uh, this evening's lesson, and of course on through the series. So we'll be looking at part three of our study this morning, and as we think about where the fingerprints lead, where the evidence leads us in regards to the identity of this angel, this morning we're going to focus our minds on the fact that the angel carried out judgment. You may have guessed that that might be where we were headed based on the opening passage of Scripture. But there's a couple different examples I want us to notice from the Old Testament, where the angel of the Lord carried out judgment uh, against different people. Now, the first example we're going to notice relates to Israel itself. If you come with me to the book of 1 Chronicles, and we're going to look here in chapter 21. Notice a couple different sections of the chapter. We're going to start by noticing verses 14 through 18, and then we're going to jump down to verses 26 uh, through the end of the chapter. Now, in the overall context of this chapter, David was king at the time over Israel, and he had decided that he was going to number. He was going to have a census. Uh, The problem was that God had told him not to do that, so he went ahead and did it anyway. And that causes some some problems. So picking up in verse 14 of the text there, it says, The Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord, my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Therefore, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So we see here the angel carrying out this judgment of God against the people. We also see him giving commands to Gad to relay to the king. Now we jump down a bit to verse 26 there. And we see that David, of course, complied with this instruction that he was given. It says, David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called on the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. Now, if you recall, uh, that's kind of reminiscent in a way of some of the things we'd studied last week, especially where we were studying Sunday evening back in Judges chapter 6 with Gideon. Remember, he had prepared this offering for the angel, and the angel answered by consuming it with this fire. So verse 27 says the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to its sheath. And at that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there for the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering which Moses had made in the wilderness. For at that time at the high place in Gibeon, but David could not go before it to inquire of God for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. So, an interesting account that we have there. Now, another that I'd like us to consider is in 2 Chronicles. We're going we're to jump to 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Now, we're going to read a good portion of this story because just even in and of itself, I think there's a lot of, of good to be learned uh, in studying it. So we're going to read, starting in verse 1 all the way down to verse 23, and then we're going to jump over to 2 Kings 19 and verse 35 and notice a significant detail concerning this event. So starting there in verse 1, 2 Chronicles 32, it says, After these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib king of Assyria came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come, and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brook that ran through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? And he strengthened himself and built up the wall that was broken, raised it up to the towers and built another wall outside, and he repaired the Milo and the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. Then he set military captains over the people, gathered them together to give uh, to him, rather, in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So verse 9 says, After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem. Uh, But it says that he and all the forces with him had laid siege uh, at that time against Lashish. So he sends his servants to Hezekiah and to all Judah who were in Jerusalem, and this is what they said. Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, In what do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars, and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it. Do you not know that I and my fathers have done to all the peoples, or what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of these other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from my hand? that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. Now therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you like this. Do not believe him, for no God or any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from mine? You can see the arrogance of this Assyrian king. Furthermore, verse 16, his servant spoke against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, as the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people from my hands, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from mine. And they called out with a loud voice in Hebrew to all the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them, to trouble them, that they might take the city. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem, as against the gods of the people of the earth, the work of men's hands. So the Assyrians are pretty confident in themselves. They're thinking back on all these other conquests that they had gone on and all the other peoples that they'd conquered. And the king here, of course, as he's speaking to the Israelites, he's saying, well, look, all these other nations had gods, quote unquote, that they trusted in, that they had confidence in, and you see what happened to them. So basically he's trying to get in their heads. He's saying, look, don't let your king deceive you into thinking that your God is actually something because, you know, you can see the evidence, in other words, in uh, in the mind of this Assyrian. So what happens? Verse 20 it says, because of this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz, prayed and cried out to heaven. And it says, the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, every leader, every captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. And so he returned, shame-faced, to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his god, some of his own offspring struck him down with the sword there. And thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah, the king, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. Now, this is one of those accounts where you can read through that, and obviously the story itself is powerful and demonstrating God's power over the so-called power of men, and what faith in God will accomplish. But you can read down through that, and it just kind of almost sounds like it's just some random angel that God said, hey, you go down there and do this, right? Uh, But I want us to notice what is written in 2 Kings chapter 19, and this is concerning the very same events. 2 Kings chapter 19, and notice there in verse uh, 35. And we're given a little bit more detail here as to which angel or who exactly this was. Notice it says, It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So we see here that this was not just any angel, but this was indeed the angel of the Lord who was sent out to carry out judgment against the enemies of God's people. Now, again, why is any of that significant? Why do we care, right? Well, as we have seen the evidence and the conclusions that were pointed to in our previous lessons, I think we begin to see the same thing as we begin to consider how Christ, as we alluded to in our opening passage there in 2 Corinthians 5, that Christ will come in judgment and carry out that judgment. And there's countless passages that we might consider to make that point, but I first want us to think about a different coming of the Lord that occurred in A.D. 70 that Jesus predicted uh, while he was here on the earth and that was the judgment against Jerusalem itself uh, that took place at the hands of the Roman empire the destruction of Jerusalem and that event is very significant in history if you read secular accounts that historians have written of the things that went on in connection with all those those days where Jerusalem was under siege and ultimately destroyed how terrible The situation was, uh, it really highlights just how significant this judgment was uh, against the Jewish nation. And that judgment, of course, was in response to their uh, majority, we might say, rejection of the Messiah, which was Christ. So, to illustrate this, I want us to spend some time in the book of Matthew 24 and That's that book that we like to avoid, right? That's so confusing. How do we make sense of this chapter? Well, I think that uh, we'll be able to do just fine here as we consider these things together. One of the keys to understanding this 24th chapter of Matthew is that there's different events that are under consideration. The first, as we're going to note, is concerning this judgment of Christ in AD 70, but then there's also some talk that Jesus uh, gives in, re- in regards to the final day of judgment that is yet to come. So we're going to start here in verse 1 of Matthew 24 and just read down through the chapter until we get to verse 35, and then we'll kind of switch over and talk about another aspect of Christ's judgment uh, as it relates to the end of time. So verse one there says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So he's talking about this very physical destruction of what they're observing, which is, of course, the temple and the city thereof. Now, as he sat on the mountain of, pardon me, getting all tongue tied here. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, the disciples came to him privately and they said, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there's several parts to that question and that, of course, again, becomes significant as we try and understand what Jesus goes on to describe. So first he's going to talk about the immediate application or the signs that will be connected with this every stone being thrown down in regards to the temple and the city of Jerusalem. So he answered and said to them, in verse 4, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, and they will betray one another, and they will hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, because lawlessness will abound. The love of many will grow cold, he says that he who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Verse 15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and who are nursing in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Sabbath, of course, the gates of the city would be closed, so that would hinder their ability to flee, the meaning there. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So you notice, just kind of to interject here as we pause for a moment, that Jesus is giving them some very interesting instructions. When they're going to see certain signs, they're going to flee for for safety out of the city, right? That desolation, uh, what's the wording there? Sorry, The abomination of desolation has reference actually to the the Roman army standing there in the temple. When they saw them actually coming in and and standing there, it was to alert them to the fact that that was when they needed to get out because it was about to get uh, really bad. The destruction was going to take place. So these are all... Physical instructions, right? It wouldn't make sense if he was talking about the final day of judgment. What sense would it be to, to flee out of a city because Peter records in 2 Peter 3 that everything's going to be burned up, right? So, so there's no fleeing for safety in the day of final judgment, right? So we can see that these things pertain to something else. And we can, through history and uh, the accounting of, of men and the things that took place, we can make those connections. So verse 23, going back to the text here, says, if anyone says to you, look, here, uh, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say, look, he's in the desert, do not go out, or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately, now, here, it's interesting because Jesus begins to use some language that's very apocalyptic in nature. And we even see some of this language in connection with the final day of judgment. But the interesting thing about it is if you go back and look at different judgments of God against different nations and peoples down through the course of history, uh, that this same apocalyptic language is likewise used. So it doesn't necessarily mean that this is the end of time. It just means that this is a, a great judgment of God that is happening. So verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. In verse 32, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Surely I say this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now that's that's your key verse there in understanding all this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So everything that he's been talking about up to that point, he says this generation that is now living is not going to pass before all these things take place. So that all helps us make the connection to what These words pertain to this judgment against Jerusalem, again, that occurred in 80-70. Now, having noted that example, we do want to also note that Jesus is coming uh, again. And of that particular day, there aren't going to be any signs. Unlike this particular judgment that happened So many years ago where Jesus gave them indications of when you see this or you see that, then that's your cue to flee for safety, etc. The final day of judgment, nobody knows when that's going to be. And Jesus explains, not just here in the same context of Matthew 24, but in various other passages throughout the New Testament, that this is going to come like a thief in the night is the phrase that we see so often. There's not going to be any kind of sign we can look to And that behooves us then to each day be prepared because it could be our last. So we'll pick up again where we had stopped reading there. In Matthew 24, we're going to read verses 36 through 44. Not quite to the end of the chapter, but the next couple paragraphs or so. And you notice that Jesus kind of shifts from what he'd been speaking about. And he says, but of... That day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. And you go back to the original questions that the disciples had asked him that prompted all of this, now you remember that it not only pertained to the signs he was speaking of regarding the temple, but also the end of time or the end of the age. So now he's going to answer that second part. and He's explaining that of that final day, Nobody knows when that's going to be. Not the angels of heaven, but he says, my father only. And in verse 37, he says, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be for in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so also will be the coming of the son of man. So again, you think back to the account back there in Genesis chapter 6. They weren't given any kind of signs as to unless they had listened to Noah, of course, and his warnings that it was coming. But when it happened, it it, it happened and nobody could have looked to the sky and said, "Oh, you know, the clouds are doing this thing over here." So it's about to start. You know, there was no no outward sign. And so it is going to be at the end of time, is what he's saying. Now, verse 40, it says, Two men will be in the field, and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. Now, I want to pause there for just a moment. I know some of this that we're getting into this morning is a little deeper than what we might normally get into in a sermon, but we need to wade into the deep end of the pool sometimes because uh, it's important that we study these things and understand them. A lot of times you'll hear people reference this passage, especially the couple verses that we just read, in support of the rapture. You've heard of the rapture, okay? And that's what they'll say that there's going to come this day when all the faithful are just going to be plucked out of. Out of the earth, and people are just going to vanish. And there's been books written and movies about this, where all of a sudden there's just cars with no driver, and they're just swerving off, and it's all this chaos. But you notice here that in the context of what Jesus is saying, he's not talking about a plucking away of the righteous. He's actually talking about when he says someone's going to be taken. It's in the context of those that were taken away in the judgment of the flood. He's using the same language to explain that when the final day comes, some are going to be taken away. They're going to be eternally separated from God. Now you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and you can see what happens to the rest, right? They go to meet the Lord in the air and forevermore be with the the Lord. So a lot of this requires a lot, a lot of other study into other things. So... For the sake of time, we're not going to dive down all these different paths, but I do want to refer to them just so we can have a better understanding of what we're reading here. So again, bottom line, verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, a couple other passages that I want to refer to that have to do with the final day of judgment. The first that we'll look at is in 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter, and we're going to start in verse 3 just to get the context of Paul's words here. So 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, he says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you abounds towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith, in all your persecutions and tribulations that you are enduring, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. See how that Ties in with what we were referring to a minute ago. From the presence of the Lord, from the glory of His power, when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints, to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. So again, here we see this picture of Christ. He's going to come and carry out judgment against those that do not know God and those that do not obey the gospel of God. And what else is going to happen on that final day? Jesus talks about some interesting things back in the gospel of John chapter 5. John chapter 5, notice with me, starting there in verse 24. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, he's talking here spiritually. In other words, when we sin, when we're in sin, we're dead, right? We're separated from God. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2 is one place that explains that. And so he's saying those that are dead in their sins are going to hear the voice of the Son of God, and it's implied that they'll respond to God, the instruction that he will teach, and they will find spiritual life in Christ. For as the Father has life in himself, he goes on, so he has granted the the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Now notice also now, verse 28, he says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and they will come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So in that last section there that we read, he's talking now about the end. And there's going to come a time where the physically dead are going to be raised. And depending upon the lives that they led, they're either going to receive that eternal reward or they're going to be sent away in eternal condemnation. And so finally on this point, and again, you know, these passages that we're reading now, I think they, they further distinguish what we were trying to distinguish there in Matthew 24 and how there's different events being talked about. Um, there was no resurrection of the dead at the destruction of Jerusalem, right? So all these details help us to differentiate between these different judgments that, she, that Jesus spoke of. And so the final passage is in Second Peter chapter three. And again here, Peter helps us to understand that this final day, this final judgment, is going to be a, a physical destruction of the created universe. So 2 Peter 3, verse 3, beginning, he says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, verse 5, they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed existed, perished, being flooded with water. He's talking about the the flood of Noah's day and that great judgment. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, he says, they're reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Beloved, do not forget this one thing. With the Lord, one day is is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as one day. In other words, time is nothing with God. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering. Why is the end not yet come, in other words? Well, because, as he says here, God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we see here, as Peter writes these things, he makes very evident that this final destruction This final judgment is physical, as was the physical flood of Noah's day. They correlate to one another. And so we're not to interpret this as some kind of spiritual or unseen judgment of fire as though he's speaking symbolically, but no, he's speaking very literally. And that is further explained as you continue to read down through the rest of that chapter. So the significance of all these things, we put it all together, is that we see Jesus has had a hand uh, from the very beginning and will have a, a hand very significantly at the very end in bringing about the judgments of God. In the Old Testament, he came in the form of this angel of the Lord and, of course, comes as, as we know him from the New Testament as the Son of God Uh, has come in judgment uh, already in the course of history since he has ascended back to the Father and will come visibly and literally at the very end of time to separate the sheep from the goats, to borrow the language of Matthew 25, and to enact that final judgment, giving the faithful eternal life and the unfaithful eternal separation from God. I appreciate your patience and your uh, attention this morning. Again, like I said, uh, in some of these things, we get kind of deep into some topics and some ideas that we don't often delve into, especially in, in a Sunday morning sermon. But uh, again, I think that when we study these things out and we understand them, uh, that the significance is is manifest, and it's, it's important that we recognize these things, and it's a a wonderful truth as we begin to piece together uh, the identity of this angel of the Lord, and we can see Christ's hand in all things from the beginning up until the end. We're going to conclude this morning with 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, beginning there, again speaking of what is going to occur in the end. Paul says, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, Christ was the first to be resurrected from the dead unto life eternal. Afterward, those who are Christ's or who are in Christ, we might say, at his coming. Then comes the end. When Jesus returns, that's going to be the end. When he delivers the kingdom, what's the kingdom? Colossians 1.13, it's the church, right? He's going to deliver the church back to the Father. When he puts an end to all rule, to all authority, to all power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. In other words, Jesus is not above God the Father. God the Father still is above all. And when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. And what is the ultimate purpose of it all? That God may be all in all, that all glory might go back to the Father. It's a beautiful picture when you see it from beginning to end and you understand the plan of salvation and all that God has done down through the course of history, injecting himself in different ways to bring about our ability to be saved from our sins, to have hope of life eternal through the Son and his sacrifice. And this morning, if there's anybody here who is not yet taking advantage of that free offering of salvation by confessing Christ, repenting of your sins, being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2.38, then why not take advantage of this opportunity you now have? We're about to stand and sing the song that our brothers selected as a means of invitation. If there's anyone here who needs to come and be saved, we stand ready to assist you in that. If you need prayers at this time, uh, we likewise would be ready to assist you in those things as well. So whoever has a need, please come up to the front now while we stand and while we sing.